1989, if you just said UFO, UAP, whatever, in Washington, D.C., you'd have been laughed out of your seat in Congress. Well, now you've got active Congress men and women that are pushing policy who are literally diametrically opposed politically. But on this uh, topic, it's bipartisan. There is no Republican or Democrat. It's like, what are we trying to do? And all people want to do is, this is not about little green men and what it is. If it leads to something like that, because we have stuff, so be it. To me, it's not important. What's important is, from our incident onward, is how do we figure out what these are? How do they work? Can we use that technology? Because if anything, our incident did. It happened 13 years after the fact when the New York Times article came out because the New York Times article basically immediately removed the stigma. Hoyas Institute is a pioneer in the field of AI-driven comparative and qualitative analysis and was established with the primary goal of uncovering the hidden value left behind in complex data sets. Through a combination of human expertise and cutting-edge technologies, Koyas has developed a range of services that cater to various industries. They are providing valuable insights that can help drive growth, formulate competitive strategy, and to identify key patterns in targeted demographics. Head to their site to learn more, koyas.institute. That's C-O-E-U-S dot institute. Welcome to Merge. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're joined by my friend David Fravor former commanding officer of VFA-41, an F-18 pilot who tactically engaged the Tic Tac UAP object. And now, David Fravor. So Dave, you're, you, you know, your background, you're, um, you are a longtime Navy guy, you know, you started in the Marines as an enlisted guy, and I don't want to steal your story, but, um, Eventually, you ended up as a commanding officer of an F-18 squadron. And before I joined the Navy, I actually saw the um, the oh, carrier, carrier uh, video, or what do you want to call it, film that uh, you were part of. So I actually, you know, I'd seen your face. I'd seen some other uh, guys that were in your squadron. Um, and I, it was interesting because I recognized them after I joined the Navy. Uh, so in some way, you know, that film and you almost motivated me to, to go to the Navy. At one point, I was thinking about the Air Force, but no. um, <laughs> you guys were just such cool dudes on the aircraft carrier. I just couldn't help myself. So. <laughs> yeah. What um, were you thinking? Yeah, what was I thinking? You, you, you got, I mean, you really grabbed the Navy by the horns and had a pretty incredible career. Um, one of the things that you got to do that I did not do is uh, go to Top Gun. So maybe we can start there a little bit. And maybe you sure. can tell me what the difference is between the training we do in the fleet uh, and what training happens at Top Gun. So, so this is this is obviously a while ago because I'm old, but uh, <laughs> I don't think the I don't think the mentality of the school has changed. I think the way they teach now because of fourth and fifth gen. But uh, for me, it was a you know when I first started flying, I, I thought, well, I'll just go, to, I, you know, be a test pilot, and then. When I started getting in, once I left the A6, which is just a, it's an attack airplane, mm -hmm. and I got to go to the normal F-18s, and I started flying, and luckily my neighbor um, is, uh, had just left Top Gun. He was a training officer at Top Gun, and we actually transitioned. So he had come out of F-14s and Top Gun, and I had come out of A6s, and we were in the exact same class. So Tom and I, I'll just use first names because it's harder <laughs> to identify, but anyone knows, we all know who it is. Uh, Tom and I went through together, and 
because he hadn't really dropped bombs, I hadn't really done any air to air. And for an A6 guy, air to air is completely dynamic. And, and I was fortunate enough to train, uh, with people like him. Uh, he took me under his wing, taught me literally how to fight the airplane. Um, and then I had a great cast, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, spark and dude and guys like that, that, that kind of took me and didn't push me away. Cause I was an A6 guy. And once I get into the tactical employment in air to air, I was just, I was hooked. So I decided I want to go to Top Gun and I asked and it, they had just shifted from the six week power projection course, which is like the original Top Gun movie where they actually come out of the fleet and they go to Top Gun. Mm. That's what used to happen. They pulled you right out of your squadron. You went, you trained for six weeks and you're, you become a training officer and they're teaching you how to teach. And then you come back and you teach those tactics. They had just started up the SFTI program or SFWT, Strike Fighter Weapons and Tactics Program, in the Navy to standardize the way we did things, and it went from a six-week to a 10-week course. And uh, I kept asking, and they had told me, you know, because I was pretty senior, I was finishing up a shore tour as an instructor, um, and they said no because we really wanted guys to go to the weapons school, as you know. And then I was fortunate enough, the Commodore went, do you really want to go? My CO had told him you have to have to send him. And when he did it, he was there. he had just had brain surgery, he had a brain tumor, and when his boss walked in, he said, you know, you need to send Dave to Top Gun. So, you know, thanks to thanks to the captain and the captain uh, that I was able to do that. So when you go through, here's, here's what's unique with Top Gun. One, everybody wants to be there. So the instructors are extremely professional. They're very standardized. There is no my opinion. It's this is the way we're going to teach. So even if there's an instructor that may not agree with the path that they're going, they are all in lockstep when they when they promote what the tactics for the United States Navy fighter community is going to be. Do you hear uh, technique only very much in those briefs? Um, is that what you're saying? Yeah, so it, they're they're really rigid to you know the the new rules that they may be writing at the moment, or are they still substituting in some of the hey this is kind of technique? Um, well, there's areas, but there's small areas yeah. for technique, and normally that almost turns into stand because you'll figure out the best technique is becomes mm -hmm. the stand on how to do things, like resetting the radar at the time that we had to do. You know, obviously different now with APG 79, but for some of the close uh, in uh, acquisition modes. So, where so Top Gun, where technique becomes comes book essentially, it, it, very much, yeah. uh, very much, and. But when you go out and fly, like when you're in the fleet, and you know this, you know, when, you, when you're flying in your normal squadron and you go out and you have a four-ship, you know, you have the person in charge, the division lead, could be it's probably either a senior lieutenant or above, and then you have a dash two, which is probably a very junior person, then you have a dash three, which is maybe just a section lead, so a mid-grade lieutenant, and then you have another probably junior person. When you go to Top Gun, everyone in your flight is a full-up division lead, probably towards the top of their game. When you go through, so mm -hmm. it's not like in the fleet where you go, hey, I need you to go do this, and you, you target, you know, to tell three and four to go do something, or you're tasking them to do something else. You know what's going to get done in the fleet. You don't know. You have to, you have to actually have to watch and shepherd them because they're new. And, and it's, that's the training mode, which is why I think the U.S. is so good because we're not centralized where it's always going to be me in charge. We shuffle that around and and push that experience because the better I can bring up the lower half closer to the upper half, I, basically I'm raising the lower bar of the span. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's why it's so good. So Top Gun trains you to do that, but they also teach you the uh, instructional techniques. And when you leave there, you're up to date on everything current. I mean, you're basically talking uh, the message of Top Gun, or as we would call it, the burning mm -hmm. bush. Mm -hmm. And and that, that obviously in 
since time, you know, so I went through Top Gun in 97. So I was class 497. Probably one of the greatest classes in the history of Top Gun. Not because of me, but some of the guys in it. Um, but, uh, you know, now you have uh, Havoc, which is the, the Prowler Growler uh, weapon school. Uh, we used to joke it was Top Dome for the E2. <laughs> Um, but now you're getting that mentality, and I was talking to, uh, he, he just left. He was in charge of Nautic, which is Naval Air Weapons Development Center in Fallon, which we used to call NSOC. It was strikes. It's had like 10 different names. But I was talking to him, and you know now they're starting to bring in the OSs, the, the specialists, the operations specialists on the ship that are the controllers that run the radars, mm. bringing them in more because there is controllers that go through Top Gun. But now when they do air wing, because this is all part of this giant training uh, facility, when the whole air wings come into train, they'll actually bring some of the ship controllers in to run the scope. So now you're, you're doing air wing Fallon strikes uh, in the complex using the shipboard guys. So when you go back and you go to sea, those guys that are on the cruisers and the destroyers actually trained with you because that's their key piece. I mean, yeah. they're the ones that control the airplanes. You get something. all the different players there in one place. You can't have a better learning experience. It's and, and, and I think it's a, it's a little bit different and no knock on, on the, you know, the, the surface communities, but I think the aviation community is far out in front of, uh, from a training aspect. Like we did this, uh, I was fortunate enough when I went to Japan, you know, I was told to go be a strike ops, which is uh, the, air wing commanders person that writes all the schedule and does all that work i said no i had to trade some orders but i ended up going to japan to a squadron and then ironically i ended up the cag pulled me up and i ended up being a strike ops <laughs> funny but how that works they gave me no yeah yeah that was my boss who sent me to top gun he was laughing because he kept telling me to, to do that uh the irony with it all is uh, i was fortunate enough because of the leadership um that I didn't have any restrictions. I was pretty much, I always said I was the most powerful lieutenant in the Navy because I controlled everything that went off and I controlled who got to control the intercepts and the training. Um, and I took uh, a cello who was my E2 uh, patch wearer. He went through Top Gun as a controller. I sent him to the small boys and he went over and gave the lecture on com brevity and everything mm -hmm. and how we do uh, intercept control to the OSs. So they were all standardized. It was mandatory that they read that chapter out of the Top Gun manual. And we trained that way for the, the nine months that I was in that position. And it's amazing how good when you have a mentality and you're going to hold people to it. Like you will be at the debrief. You will write this stuff. So you could come back from a flight. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The controller from the whatever ship was out there with us, you'd come back and on our uh, classified internet, which is called Cipernet, you would have like the initial picture and what he saw and all that. Mm -hmm. So when you're getting ready to debrief, you have what the controller saw. Normally, you don't have that. You just come back and you have to recreate stuff on your own. So it was, it was vital for us. And then we could actually write feedback back to the controllers, like, "Hey, you make sure you get this. Your comm was off," because you know how you know you say one wrong thing, you can suck the situational awareness yeah. out of the entire flight. So, so let me ask you, you know, as you as you took these experiences of Top Gun and then became a commanding officer. Um, you know, there's always competition between different squadrons uh, and various performance metrics. Um, how are you, were you kind of implementing some of what you learned at Top Gun to your squadron overall, as far as, you know, center of excellence? How'd you guys perform in relation? Um, Maybe that's you know, too. From, well, no, <laughs> um, you know, I learned it in the Marines when I was 18 years old that you lead from the front. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like to think that I did that, you know, I, you know, people still talk to me, which is always a good point. You know, when you're not in command and people that work for you still talk to you, that's always a good sign that you didn't, you didn't screw it up that bad. 
Um, no, like my friend Tom that I was talking about who uh, basically taught me how to fight the airplane, uh, you know, he used to joke, he had this speech, you know, it's called Stop Sucking. Um, <laughs> and, and that's really it. It's, it's really the standard that you set. Um, the unique part, especially when I was a CEO, is the SFWT program had proliferated very strongly. I mean, it was like when it first came out, there was resistance from CEOs because now you're telling them how to, they have yeah. to do training to where it became it's the norm so that everyone had come up that way. So you could take someone out of any squadron and fly with them and you knew exactly how they should perform based on their level of training. And the fact that we had SFTIs all around. So, you know, several of my counterparts had went through either the power projection course or the SFWT course. I think the two other CEOs were power projection. Um, and then I had department heads in VFA 94. Uh, one of them went on to be uh, the, the wing, the Commodore, mm -hmm. you know who he is. Uh, he was a, he was a top gun instructor, uh, in a SFWT. So we had a lot of people in all the squadrons. So it wasn't a, uh, necessarily a, you know, I wasn't a, you know, VFA 41 had to be the best. I just expected a standard mm -hmm. and we ended up, we did a lot, you know, part of it is, uh, the nature of, you know, one, I had brand new jets, which the, the F-18 squadrons, including the Marine squadron did not. Uh, so my maintenance efforts and VFA-14's maintenance efforts were lower because the jets didn't break. Um, I had twice as many people because I had an F squadron, so I had mm -hmm. the backseaters. So I had, you know, f I think I had 40-some officers. I think it was 47 officers in the squadron, which normally are down in the 20s. So it allowed me a lot of flexibility to do things and allows my air crew to, to focus more on some things. But at the same time, if one squadron is good and the other squadron is bad, then we're not getting to where we need to go as a, as an, as a composite air wing. Mm -hmm. And we all train together. So we never went out like all four jets were VFA-41. It was, you know, a VFA-41 jet. And we got paired a lot with the Marines uh, with 223. So like when we were doing the stuff in Iraq, you know, I'd go out with a brand new, you know, captain in the Marine Corps would be flying on my wing. So it was all about training those. And then, as you know, the most important thing is, you know, while you're doing the flight, there's the execution. But... Most of the stuff we do is training, so where you really get the benefit is when you come back and you talk about it, and you talk about everything, and it's not an aggressive, like, you know, you were terrible today. We take that out, so it's always the fighter and the bandit, and what was the Very fighter objective. thinking at this time? Yeah, it, it takes out the who. It's not a name. It's we're not pointing fingers, but it's just like, what were we thinking, and here's a better option, and... Um, so that the next time they have that in the back of their head of, you know, this is something, this worked really well for me. This is something that didn't work well. And, you know, everyone has their day. It's just like a professional athlete, you know, you know, take, uh, you know, any of the, you know, Patrick Mahomes or uh, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, probably the best example. They have, they've had bad games. They all go out and just have a bad game. It's what do you do after the bad game? Do you blame someone else or do you just go, no, nah, it was me. We need to fix this and move on. And that mm -hmm. was kind of it. And, and for me and Dell, who was my XO, and for Kenny, who was CO when I was XO, because we, we move up. You know, when Kenny moved out, I became the CO. Dell became the XO. When I left, Dell became the CO. Mm -hmm. We were, for the most part, you know, we were probably 98, 99% on the same sheet. So when I took over for Kenny, it wasn't like this drastic night and day where I just said, oh, my God, everything he did. Because everything he did, I agreed with. Mm -hmm. I, I actually loosened the reins on one thing um, of allowing a flight to go out without a senior or without an 04 above, which was uh, fine. And then uh, Dell changed very little when I left. So 
the squadron for that time, and I'm pretty sure when he turned over to, to Chaser, it was pretty much almost a seamless move, and the, and the squadron maintained that reputation of, mm-hmm. you know, because um, it's just, you know, you know how it is. You just, you just want to be good. Everyone wants to perform. And those that don't, you just help them move on and, <laughs> and, and get on with it. But uh, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, the, the organization will take on the personality of the leader, and if you want to accept mediocrity, that's exactly what you're going to get. And, and we just didn't accept it. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no regrets. And I, I mean, I had to, I had to build my squadron because we had a short time. We had a massive turnover right before cruise, and the the uh, training squadron couldn't produce priors, which are top. You know, they have to have certain specs. And so I had to, I had to literally get waivers to bring people into my command to deploy. But we made it work. Mm-hmm. We made it work. We had a, to this day, I think we had a really good group. Um, we had a lot of fun. You know, so. You, you in know. touch with a lot of the the people that served with you in that uh, time period? Yeah, also? periodically. Well, obviously Alex, because she was in the flight with me that, with the Tic Tac. So, mm-hmm. you know, obviously her and I talk. But no, uh, several of my JOs, which is funny because, like, my most junior guys in my squadron are now, a lot of them are post-command uh, folks. Uh, the, the guy that was in my back seat is still on active duty. He's a captain. My department head is a two-star uh you know, officially an old man in the Navy. Kenny's now. a three star. You know, it's when you get that point. Like my peers that are still in that were COs are three stars, mm-hmm. three and four stars. Mm-hmm. So um, it's you know, time goes. You know, and here in you know a few years, they'll all all of my folks will probably be out. You know, and I'll just be a relic, which is fine <laughs> with me. You know, I always said, you know, what what I got to do in the Navy and and in the military was great. I loved every minute of it. I think being a pilot like that. And carrier aviation is the greatest job on the planet, and, and I'll hold to that. Uh, and you, you just because the experiences of of being able to do what you do is amazing. But the people that you get to work with in that environment, um, from the the lowest E one in the squadron all the way up, they all provide an incredible value. And I have yet to find that type of camaraderie anywhere else since I got out. But why I say that it doesn't define. It's not who I am. You know, I don't have to introduce myself as, you know, hey, I'm Dave. I was a fighter pilot. If you don't know, you're probably not going to get it out of me unless someone says something. Because to me, it's I don't, I don't want to be defined by that. Mm-hmm. And, and my friends, you know, I, I worked with two folks. This is a, this is a good story. They were two flags uh, from the same branch of service. And they both actually had, had held the same job. Um, you know, so they had large organizations. Uh, they were very combat-oriented. One of them would introduce himself as, hey, I'm, you know, by rank. The other one who actually probably did more, especially from a combat thing, because he had uh, full up during the Iraqi freedom campaign, um, would never tell you. He would say, hi, mm-hmm. I'm so-and-so. And he, he would tell you, hey, I'm retired. But that's it. He didn't, he, didn't ha- he didn't have to tell you who he was. And it was one of those... If they don't know, they don't need to know. Mm-hmm. If they know, that's fine. But he didn't, he didn't define his life by that. He was one of the most humble individuals. I actually joked him because it was a different service. I, I said, you know, man, I said, I'd, I'd have been in that service. I could work for you. <laughs> and he said, thanks. Thanks. That's very humbling. And he was. When you, when you meet leaders, you've, you've seen people like that. When you meet leaders like that, that don't have to walk in with their rank, that just mm-hmm. walk in, they have a presence, and you know, and they're very humble about it, that's the one that people are really going to follow. And to me, it was it was. To, to meet people like that, and I've worked for some amazing people across uh, my career, which is probably why, you know, a lot of those guys are three and four stars right now. Um, and I made the choice to just leave. So mm-hmm. 
it's it's all right. It's, I'm, I'm very happy with my decisions on why I did that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you had, you brought it up, you had an experience with the Tic Tac, as it's known now, and, I'm, you know, we don't have to go into great depth of particular experience, but I wouldn't mind getting a little meta around the conversation. Uh, so that happened while you were in the position of commanding officer of yes. VFA 41, correct? Yeah, I had been in command for about a month. Oh, okay. I took over from Kenny, and I think it was like October 16th, somewhere around there. We had just come back from SFARP. We, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the kind of leader, you know, some people like when you're in command, you don't want your replacement coming in. So we were going to SFARP. So it was, you know, Kenny was the boss and then me, I was his XO and Dell was going to be my XO. And he was in Lemoore and I I'd said, well, do we want to bring him on SFARP? And Kenny said, by all means, we do, which is a huge t- uh, testament to him. You know, he doesn't have this insecurity like I'm going out because, you know, and he's done quite well for himself, obviously, in the Navy. So we all went and had a great time. And then we came back. We were all three there. We were all three ready to do the change command. We all worked on it. Uh, you know, because, you, you, as you know, on the outgoing, you want it to go really well because, you know, it's when you when you do that, and you don't, I don't tell you when you do it, when you turn over a squadron, you feel like someone died, like someone has removed a piece of you. So when you walk off the dais after a change of command and you're the outgoing, you literally feel like someone died. And, you know, like Kenny lived like five doors down from me. I mean, we were pretty close. We were very close. We spent a lot of time together. Um, but to have that and to for him to be secure enough to go, yeah, because some – I've seen squadrons where they're like, no, he can come when I'm gone mm-hmm. on the day of the change of command. Uh-huh. When he can show up. Um, I had a, we had a ship like that where I got to know the CO really well because the outgoing CO didn't want him riding the boat from California to Hawaii. Wow. So he rode on Nimitz with us. Doesn't bode well. Um, no, but the guy who came in, uh, Bill, was – <laughs> he was, well, both of them were good guys. They were very good, very, 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 very competent yeah. uh, at what they did. Um, but we got to know Bill really, really well. And when we went on cruise, because he knew us really well, we we were able to do a lot of things that would have never happened had we not had that friendship mm-hmm. and that bonding. So, so, so you were the commanding officer. You just got there. Um, you have this experience. Um, we can go into a little quick details uh, in a little bit. I think most of the listeners will probably be familiar. But um, when you came back, my understanding is that you got, I would say, probably par for the course, you know, harassment on this topic. Oh, yeah. Um, but what I'm more interested in is what about your kind of more senior colleagues that have known you for a while at this point? How did they engage in this topic with you if you engaged them? No, they were uh, – so I knew I knew the captain pretty well. Um, of the ship? Mm-hmm. The whole ship, yeah. At the time, uh, well, not the same one that we deployed with, but uh, uh, I didn't at that time. I ended up being uh, got to know the next admiral really well, um, but the the admiral that we had during that time, I didn't, I didn't. He didn't really, he didn't converse with us much. Mm-hmm. Where uh, the next one was out more, and we hung out with their staff a lot. Uh, matter of fact, I'm getting ready to go to a um, a. Uh, retirement for the lawyer that was with us mm. um but the senior folks know like uh the captain they would they just saw it and said hey what do you think and i said you know uh, when you'd look at them and go i have no idea what it was i mean it was the weirdest thing i've ever seen in my life and i told my backseater that most of them were very accepting because you know how it is there's a level of confidence it's not like you know it's you know a whack job not in that position yeah. 
So once they figure it out, they're like, what do you think? But you also got to – and this, I think this is what frustrates people that don't understand how it works – is we're literally at our first at-sea period, which was combined into a two-month period. So we were doing the whole Comp 2, a ref to Comp 2, all that, all in one at two-month at-sea period, where we pulled in for Thanksgiving. And we actually had to convince them to let us go back up to Lemoore so we could drive up and spend Thanksgiving with our families, which they allowed us to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we literally had like that five-day gap where the ship pulled in, we got off, we went to Thanksgiving, we came back, we got back on, and we were out. So from the beginning of November when we left, except for that five-day jump over Thanksgiving— um, we were out till like like the twenty first or twenty second of December. Mm-hmm. Where were you operating? Off the coast of San Diego, mm-hmm. which is uh, there's a bunch of they're called warning areas, which is basically just tells people who are flying airplanes there's high military activity out here. You know, enter at your own risk. It, it's not a prohibited that you can't go into, like the airplane that just flew across DC and then ended up crashing because they were yes, hypoxic. That is that's P airspace. That's prohibited airspace. Then there's restricted airspace, which is like the bombing ranges, which you don't want to go in there, which I've seen people do. And then the warning areas are just basically military operating areas over water. So we were out there playing around for that, that two months. So, you know, we go on this flight. You know, obviously the cruiser had seen all that stuff, never told us. We didn't even know they were out there. And we go out on that training mission, and I'm not going to repeat the story, but, um, you know, we're the first time that they had actually seen the things and they had manned airplanes, you know, uh, going out. So they said, hey, kill the train. Let's go figure out what these things are because we've been seeing them. And that's exactly what happened. And then you get out there and then you see it and you're like, okay. And it's the standard process, like, okay, low over water, white helicopter, Okay, then your brain goes into, okay, identifying things of a helicopter. Rotors, rotor wash, tail boom, doesn't have any of that, okay? Not a helicopter. Oh, okay, well, let's go down and get closer to it. And then it comes back up at us, and you're like, okay, we don't have anything that just kind of hang out over the water like that. And then just come up and match me in a two-circle flow uphill while I'm coming downhill. Mm-hmm. And then when we cut across and it goes – as it's crossing my nose, it just rapidly accelerates and disappears um, – what, you is, know. what does that mean tactically to you as a pilot when something matches you to circle? Uh, How would from, you explain it to a layman? F- well, here, here's the easiest way is one, so I'm coming downhill and I'm probably doing around 300 knots. There's a reason 300 mm-hmm. knots is like a really good airspeed for the airplane if you need maneuverability. So as I'm coming down, then all of a sudden you got something hovering and it just turns and it, it's like almost instantaneous. It's doing the same speed as me. It goes around. So now you start questioning, you know, uh, Thrust to weight is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. You can just instantaneously accelerate and start matching an airplane that's coming downhill when you're coming uphill. Is he essentially on your lift vector? No, so he's he's off my a wing. Stabilized flight, like he's very stabilized. So would you say it's like a he's stabilized it so you're no longer closing on on it, or you can no longer bring your nose around, or is it just no? He's across the circle. So if you look at it, we're it's it's like. I don't know if kids still play it, Ring Around the Rosie or Duck, Duck, Goose, where when you're a kid, everyone sat in a circle, and then two people were it, mm-hmm. one on one side, one on the other, and you'd walk around and duck, yep. duck, duck, and you'd run. And, you know, eventually the the cheap, the easiest way to get someone is to cut across the circle, or you're faster than them. Mm-hmm. So in a two-circle flow, the one who can get around the circle fastest is the one who's probably going to win because he's going to become more and more offensive. And eventually, if he's fast enough, he's going to end up behind the other person. Mm-hmm. Do you think he was fast enough to get behind you? Um, oh, yeah. You know, we didn't know that at the time. You know, I just saw it. Yeah. Like, you know. So I guess what I'm trying to ask is what, what's your tactical assessment of it making that maneuver? Was it to stabilize the situation? Was it trying to— Yeah, I think it's just to neutralize me coming down mm-hmm. and to, to, to see— you know, Maybe, I don't know, 
Because you don't know if it was, you know, like I said, it didn't it didn't have windows or anything, but mm-hmm. you don't know, you know. It's you, nose maybe it was anything. virtual. It could turn. I mean, we already saw how it moved. We already saw it abruptly just uh, swap its axis from north-south to basically, mm-hmm. you know, west to east and start coming up at us. So you knew it had some maneuvering capabilities that you don't have. And then for it to just to match us as we're going around the circle, you know it's pretty much at the same speed coming up at you. Um and that's when I decided when we went all the way around once and it was I was getting to that basically my vertical turn room. Mm-hmm. That's when I cut across the circle and it just it didn't come at us. It was never it was never threatened. I never mm-hmm. felt threatened at all. And as it came up, you know, and you can see because we have a glare shield, which is the canopy rail where the canopy closes, you know, between the windshield and the, the roof that comes down. Once it got inside of that to my windscreen in that left quarter, you could kind of start to see it as it accelerated. And in that short period of time, which if you put a ruler there is like what, maybe a max of 12 inches, it it just accelerates and goes away, you know. And like mm-hmm. I've always said, the one regret is we didn't have the helmet cam on because no one really turns the helmet cam on because it's annoying. And no one watches that video. Had we had the helmet cam on, we probably got some really cool video of this thing, but we didn't have the helmet cam on, so it's a regret. But luckily, Chad went out on the next flight. We landed, told him about it, and he just happened to, by luck, that thing was where we told it would be, and he caught that minute 30-second video of it. So kind of cool yeah. that he did because he came back and told us right away, and then we were all – because we had debriefed our flight, you know, and our flight was pretty much what what was that. You know, that's the strangest thing. And, you know, and I was at the time – I don't know, I was – that's probably around thirty six hundred hours. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Of so that's that's a lot of hours in a tactical jet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, to see that, you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and nudes was in my back, and you know he had done the O three cruise. He'd done most of the O three cruise, and then uh, Alex was new. She had been in the squadron for four months, five months. She got there in June, mm-hmm. right before we did Northern Edge. She was June, July, August. Five months she'd been in the squadron, and uh, and then her backseater uh, was inexperienced. He was uh, one of the department heads who had worked for me at the previous two and this one, and uh, very very competent uh, Jim. So you know he had basically two really experienced, one moderately experienced, and one new. Mm-hmm. And oh by the way, and you know how it is, not only is Alex new, but she's flying on the CO's wing, yeah. which is there's. There's a lot of pressure. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, you got to do a presentation. It's the first time you're doing it. Your boss is there. <laughs> I remember that flight for me when I went out to uh, the Enterprise for the first time. Fortunately, the, f- when the first time I flew off my skipper's wing, I ended up with a undi- un- un- undetected bleed air um, break. And it oh, was nice. essentially like a little laser cutting through the control feedback lines on the stick. Um, and so I basically limped the jet back. Didn't do a good job of communicating how serious the situation was. Uh, with LSOs, and you know, I, I had, if I wanted to stick the aircraft to go to the right, I'd take two hands to push the stick over to get it to go. And if I tapped it to the left, it would basically go 120 degrees right over. It was oh, very wow. strange. And so I had to bring it back onto the ship. And uh, yeah, long story short, they ended up having to depot the jet um, because of the damage in there from the bleed lines. Yeah, um, but, bleeders, nasty stuff. Yeah, but I, I digress. So you know, you've told your story a lot. Um, you know, 60 Minutes, Joe Rogan, all over the place. What do you want people to understand about that experience that, you know, doesn't come up a lot? Well, the the biggest one for me is, um, and it's died down, um, people shouldn't try and embellish the story. The story is what it is. And there's all kinds of 
uh, stuff coming out, like people watched it live, you know, like I was sitting watching it while it was happening. Well, that's funny because the jet didn't have the ability to send that video back at the time. And oh, by the way, we weren't taking any video, so you didn't watch it live. Next one is the, oh, it's, it was 10 minutes long. I watched it. It's 10 minutes long. It's not 10 minutes long. It's, it's that minute, 30 seconds. That's what it is, what it is. Matter of fact, the pilot that was flying the airplane when Chad took the video, if you talk to them, uh, it was uneventful. Like, almost like, because I said, what, what, do you remember? And they're like, no, it's kind of like a no big deal. You know, if you look, the jet's on autopilot doing 250 knots when he, when he takes that video. So, um, I mean, it was, uh, you know, what it was because, you know, I've heard um, very uh, intellectual PhDs say, well, it could have been this. It could have been a balloon. It's like, come on. You know, I've got four people train. We watched it. And I like to think that I had decent experience. Matter of fact, a lot of people are saying stuff. I had a lot more experience than them, even the military guys, although they may have more hours as far as tactical employment and what I was doing. I, I know I have way more experience than they did. And they're in unique positions right now. And one of them just said something. So um, it is it is what it is. You know, it, time will tell, especially in with everything coming out right now with with Mr. Gorsh coming out. I think that's how you say his name. About uh huh, crush, I think. Grosh, Grosh, Grosh. Um, he's pretty tricky coming out. Uh, basically, literally saying the same thing that Bob Lazar said in 1989, and you know, Bob got chastised for it. And this guy's coming out now. It's like because because it's accepted in 1989. If you just said UFO, UAP, whatever in Washington, D.C., you'd have been laughed out of your seat in Congress. Well, now you've got active Congress men and women that are pushing policy, you know, and I think it was uh, Senator Rubio and Senator Gillibrand who are literally diametrically opposed politically. <laughs> but on this thing, they're not diametrically opposed. And I've sat in rooms with both Republicans and Democrats who are diametrically opposed. And, uh, but on this uh, topic, it's bipartisan. There is no Republican or Democrat. It's like, what are we trying to do? And all people want to do is this is not about little green men and what it is. If it leads to something like that because we have stuff, so be it. To me, it's not important. What's important is from our incident onward is um, how do we figure out what these are? How do they work? Can we use that technology? Because if anything, our incident did, it happened 13 years after the fact when the New York Times article came out because the New York Times uh, article uh, basically immediately removed the stigma because now you've got credible sources saying this stuff is real. Uh, and like ours, I even had people thought that were in my squadron thought that we had signed non-disclosures. We never signed non-disclosures. We were never told to shut up. The men in black never showed up. Um, I've talked to other CEOs who are involved of, you know, other people are, oh, we gave away all the, we had to give away all the black boxes. You know, as you know, in the in the classified world, there's a custody trail you sign for. So you just don't, here, take this. Here, knock yourself out. Yeah, you must be good. You're wearing a black suit. I'm going to give it to you now. It, it doesn't work that way. Um, so if anything of that did is it allowed us 13 years later to do the New York Times article. Obviously, there's the, the not, I call it the unofficial official report. That came out that ATIP or that uh, yeah ATIP did under Lou Elizondo, that got wrote. It's about 
20. I mean, I know the guy, Jay, did it. Jay's, Jay's out talking right now. Jay he's Stratton. At, Jay Stratton. Jay's out of, you know, the, the government. He's working in the private sector now. He actually is the one that called me on the phone back in 2009 to get that ball rolling. So there's a, there's a bunch of these pieces. You know, you think, wow, you think it would have been nice if it happened faster. We might have had access to data. But then I'll turn around and say, I think there's a lot more data now. You know, I, I said this to the senators, like for the East Coast stuff that was going on when, when you were on the flight with the gimbal video, um, you know, what do you guys call it? Giant killer? It's mm -hmm. giant killer. You know, why isn't someone going to giant killer, which is the coastal defense radars going, where's the data? I mean, they probably have that. You know, they might not have it from 2015 because, you know, over time things get archived and put away. But, you know, there's other stuff going on. There's all these anomalies where you go, hey, I've, I just saw an object on the radar. Go come down and go all the way to the right and then reverse and go to the left. And, you know, we do track space. You know, NASA, you got to do it. They do it for the space station alone just so objects, you know, so they can do avoidance maneuvers because there's so much stuff up there now. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't, it's not, this isn't the 60s where it was the Russians and us. Now there's, I forget, what they say, 60 different countries have got stuff in space there's a lot of stuff so you got to track all that junk that's up there flying around well when you're tracking that junk if there's stuff up there you're going to see weird stuff you know our stuff all goes in the same direction once we get it in orbit it goes like this it goes around that's how it works mm -hmm. you know if it's geo it's out far enough to where its velocity equals the rotational velocity of the earth and it stays in the same spot roughly over the earth it's not hard you can you can pick up a high school physics book and figure that stuff out but when you see stuff going the opposite direction and doing stuff that we don't have the, the technology to do right now, then, you know, you ought to take the time to look at it. That personally, I'm like, it's a small budget. The original ATIP budget was, what, $22 million over four years mm -hmm. or five years? It's, you know, if it's five years, it's $4.4 million, which in the big picture of thing is nothing in the government. It's mm -hmm. not even in the rounding air. I mean, that's like lunch money for your kids. Yeah. I've been seeing some interesting um, range Fowler reports on some FOIA requests. Of course, FOIA is only um, um, so useful. It's uh, For those that are not aware, they're essentially requests where if you have certain information, uh, theoretically, by law, you're allowed to uh, ask the government for that information since as a taxpayer, uh, that is your information. Uh, you, you have to have enough information about what you're looking for to allow that government employee to actually go find it. And of course, that and therefore is going to be information that's communicated by the government. Um, what, what's your opinion of FOIA so here's, data? Here's, here's my opinion on FOIA. So a lot of times it works really well. You, you send in the request, you know exactly where it's at, you know who to send it to. You can get that information. So if you wanted information like from the Supreme Court, you know, people know where to go get stuff. If you wanted information from, uh, you know, whatever organization is that's releasable, you, you go to that. But the problem is, is people go, well, I know that this happened. So I got called about a FOIA request for our incident. And and the, the this is like while you're in the this was uh, 2000, about 20. 2016 was before the New York Times article came out. Mm. So, and I was living up in New England. So I got a phone call from a Navy commander. She was down at the Pentagon. She said, is this commander favor? I said, it is. She said, hey, we have a FOIA request about your incident in 2004. Do you know of any official stuff? I said, official. <laughs> she said, yes. I said, I know of no official stuff because I didn't know of any official documentation on it. Now, I knew there was an unofficial official report that was done by ATIP, um, but that's not for me to release, and I don't know if it's official. And actually, the irony in the whole thing is the people, the 20 people in the original ATIP organization that Lou ran, 
were FOIA exempt. So their works were not releasable by FOIA. The other one is, is you send stuff randomly and you go, hey, I need this. And it ends up on the desk of some poor person at the Pentagon that's, you know, miserable sitting in a cubicle in the five-sided concrete monstrosity, you know. And then it's like, how much time am I going to put to answer this FOIA request? He's going to do his search. He's going to look, or she, that person, is going to look for whatever it is. And in a certain amount of time, when it's done, it's like, I didn't find anything. There's nothing to find. You know, if you know there's the obvious, like, I know that this report exists, like the Durham report that just came out. I know that I want to read that report. And you can request that report. That's fine. You know it's there. But if you're requesting something that you don't really know the existence of, and then you get nothing back, you go, hmm, you know, the government's in a cover-up. I don't think the government's in a cover-up. I just think the poor person that had to go look for all that stuff for you and do your basic research papers so you can have this put enough time in. It's, if you know how car insurance works, when you crash your car, you know, and your estimator comes out and, he, and they look at your car. So let's say you had a red car. Remember, red cars are really hard to match paint because they fade. Okay. Right? So it's not as bad now because we have the clear coats and stuff. But in like the 70s and 80s, cars faded. So red, you'd go, hey, it was this red. It was guards red. I had a 911. It was guards red. And it, But it's eight years old. And then you go try and match the guards red with the original paint. It's just like open up an older car that doesn't have clear coat on it and look at the paint inside the door jams and look at the paint on the outside. Mm. They're usually two different colors <laughs> because of the sun and UV. So when you would go, when you're at your car, when they do the estimate, they go, it's going to take two hours to paint this car. That two hours is everything. That includes matching your paint. So the guy's mixing, you know, adding the whites and blacks into the red to get it to the right shade. He's doing the best he can. And it's time's up. I got to paint the car because time is money. It's kind of FOIA requests that way. Look, I got so much time to get you what you want. If I don't get it done or it doesn't match, that's not my problem. You got what it is. It is what it is. Move on. You know, put another FOIA request, send it to me again, and then I'll just I'll know you by name, and I'll I'll make sure that I don't do my job because yeah. you're you're painful. So perhaps you know of limited value, but you can strike gold uh, on occasion if you have enough information, perhaps. Very but, much so. Yeah. So when you I was talking to government officials uh, about because they said where would where would this be? I mean, this is many people. I've got phone calls from from congressmen. I said, well, you got nowhere to look. No one's going to volunteer. No one's going to wave their flag and say, hey. Call me. They're not going to do it. You know, they all have jobs. So you have to know exactly where to look. Like, you need to go, hey, I know that this specific organization inside of this specific entity, I know for a fact they have information. It's been corroborated. You need to go to them. You know, by law, at least my understanding of the law, you know, the elected officials have a lot of power. It's the whole reason that our government succeeds is, you know, it's by the people for the people. So if you have entities, i.e. some government, you know, I don't care, name the agency or, you know, DOD, CIA, NSA, you, you name it. If they're willful, if you go in and know exactly where to look and I like you're that person and I go to you, I go, I know you have this, show it to me. And you play stupid like you don't know where it's at and this and that, then I think there's repercussions. I think there's repercussions that should be paid. Mm-hmm. But I also think that the elected officials who go after this stuff need to handle it with uh, – the right level of sensitivity. Like you just can't go, Oh, well, you know, this agency has this super secret. I'll just say they, a a government agency puts a super secret satellite up that does all kinds of cool stuff. It's technology that no one else has. And we track UFOs with it. You're not going to give them the pictures and tell them where it came from because you don't want to compromise the technology that allowed you to get that. Right. So that stuff is the stuff that's protected. 
But if you go, hey, I know there's some East Coast guys that took pictures of a thing with their cell phones where they're flying off the vacapes, that's a different story. You know, for one, it's an iPhone. Number two, it's in U.S. airspace. You know, the only thing that would you could say is, well, it was a government entity. I go, it was a government entity out there doing training, but it, the training was not to go take the picture. The guy just looked out, saw something, pulled his, his unzipped his pocket, pulled his iPhone out, took a few pictures, and then moved on. I go, you know, that's not by definition meets a classification level at all. Mm-hmm. No, if I went to if I went to another country as an undercover spy, and I took pictures of a, you know, maybe they had a, I don't know. A new airplane, you know, they had the, what's the, the X, the MiG-31 from Firefox with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> you know, I went there and I took out my camera and I took pictures of it through the fence line. That's a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, that is protected because one, you don't want them to know where the picture came from because then they can usually smart enough to track who's in the area at the time and they'll figure out who it was. So, but it's just how we classify. And, and I think the problem with, especially the UFO stuff is, it's been put behind this big vault doors for so long um, that there's a fear to talk about it. You know, some some services are better than other organizations are better than other. Mm-hmm. Some like I'll, you know, I I'll bash on them, but the the whole Project Blue Book stuff was you know, at first it was disprove, you know that uh, it was swamp gas, and the other one was if you can't, you just discredit the individual and you make it go away, knowing deep down, you know, and, and uh, Dr. Heineck said that you know, later that, yeah, I, there was stuff that I just couldn't say and I made it up and, and I think he regretted it. I think it was the same thing with the Roswell guy on his deathbed came out and said, all those pictures with the weather balloon were staged. Well, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Moving the conversation forward, do you think, you now I would classify the conversation we've been having for the past few minutes as uh, understanding perhaps some of the disclosure process of existing data. Yep. I'd say that's, you know, one one hand. On the other hand, you know, you could perhaps call it discovery, uh, which is perhaps the open source or civilian um, research efforts to look into this. Um, where do you see those two kind of efforts playing going forward? Do we think that, you know, disclosure through the government is perhaps the best methodology to get to the truth? Or do we think that open source efforts on the outside are perhaps the best or maybe both? It's both to an extent. Here's why I say that. Um, we know because we have a very open society, contrary to what you may see on social media and people who want to bash the United States of America, uh, and, and I'll say it to anyone, this is still the greatest country in the world. It provides the best opportunity. And I can give you living examples of people who have immigrated here and literally made a life for themselves that they would have never had in their home country. It's really, if you want to work and you want to put the effort into it, you can succeed. Because of that and because of that open society that we have that we don't put people in a box and we, we afford that opportunity, it's also can be a negative, i.e. Uh, our adversaries are really good at sending people into our academic institutions to get jobs over here that basically steal technology. I'm not talking military secrets, although that does happen. I'm talking just, you know, you go work at Dell Computer or you industrial work at secret. Industrial Secrets that you take it over. I mean, if you look right now, you know, one of China's big headaches of what we're doing right now is, you know, we're not exporting a bunch of technology. Well, if we don't export the technology, it's harder for them to get, right? And, you know, there's, like, I will say, I'm not creative at all. Uh, I can copy really well. It's the creative minds that you need to protect. That Those are the ones that invent the new stuff. Those are the ones that 
you know, these high-end universities that are doing the math that even the people that, that uh, you know, that I, I've worked with and have worked for me that are PhDs, very, very smart, but they're still not the ones coming up with most of them are not the ones creating new math. You know, they're not Einstein who's living and going, you know, I'm going to go completely off and come up with new theories. You know, that is something that, you know, I'm not saying they're, they're all the best, but some of the best institutions to do that and the opportunities to do that based on funding and everything else are here in the United States. We need to protect that. So that's really important. That's where when you go, hey, if, let's say, for example, we caught a we, – we found an alien spaceship lands in my front yard, Right. But it gets covered up real quick, and we grab the technology. It gets put on a flatbed truck, and away it goes. Don't come to my house and start looking for the footprints in the yard. It's not there. I'm making this up. <laughs> but if that happens, now we know that the government has something. So now the government has to figure out, all right, this is technology that we don't understand. So now we've got to reverse engineer. Now I'm a big proponent of saying, hey, there's a lot of really smart people that aren't tied to the United States government that may be able to solve the problem. But now you're into that, that catch-22 of – do I pull some of these other people out that maybe can't qualify because they have so many contacts in other places that they would push that, they would let it out? They, they would, you know, because if you have a technology, it's, it's, like, it's like nuclear. You know, when we invented the bomb, you know, the Manhattan Project, we were the first ones to detonate the bomb, and we're the only country to ever use it in wartime. And people have a fit about that. And I said, yeah, but it saved a lot of lives, believe it or not. And, oh, by the way, there was more destruction done by firebombing than the nukes. So we can take it at that. That's my political uh, agenda. But um, we did it. But now you've got an incredible power, right? But, hey, it was in the hands of the U.S. And people say, yeah, but you used it. Yeah, we used it to end the war. And it did. It ended the war like that. Now swap it and go, Hitler got it first. Now you've got an incredible power in the hands of someone who doesn't want to do good and doesn't want to control it, who wants to use it for pure evil. Now move on to something. Let's just, on a whim, let's go, hey, you've got, you get the, a Tic Tac. You catch a Tic Tac. And oh, by the way, the Tic Tac is powered very much on what how Bob Lazar describes the vehicles that he worked on. It's powered by Element 115. It creates a gravitational field, and you can move things around really fast. Okay. You could use that for good, like, wow, I can generate this incredible amount of power. I can really change mankind, and it'll be used for the good. But eventually, that technology will end up in the wrong hands. Now think about it where I've got this thing, and if it performs like what we saw, you know, it can, I could have it here in, you know, here in Portsmouth. I load it up with something bad, like a, a weapon. I go, go. It goes straight up into space. It goes to wherever it is. It comes straight back down, and it does this. In a matter of seconds, it goes up, down, down, lands in the middle of a city, sets the fuse for three seconds, drops it out the door, closes up, and it's gone. Two, one, boom. You don't even know it was there. Now you've got a technology in the hands of someone who's going to use it for evil and use it to hold people hostage. That's the fear why you need to protect some of this stuff. And then you can go on and on and on, like, how are these things traveling? How are they How are they moving? If, if really there's no planet for them to come from that's you know not more than you know 15 light years away how do they get here you know there's a bunch of stuff we don't understand mm -hmm. which is a little bit of a frustration with um some of the folks that are physics minded that say well that's against the law of physics no it's against the laws of physics that we know mm -hmm. you know einstein came up with a lot of laws of physics and, and theories that went against what people believed at the time but they've been proven to be true mm -hmm. so because we don't have it now 
doesn't mean it's not possible. It just means we haven't figured it out. And if you talk to, you know, because I've talked to Bob, he'll tell you. I said, how long do you think you, what you saw, uh, he said, at least another 100 years because our material science. It's the same thing with anything else. You go, oh, can we do this? We don't have the material science to do it. But now we do. So you know, I was talking to him one day and I said, uh, I said, hey, how would you describe it? He said in 1989, because he, he says he got to go inside the craft. And this is obviously to the audience if you're assuming that you believe Bob. But I'll just say Bob's a very legitimate guy and he's very smart. He said if you'd asked me it was made out of wax and then you heat it up and then all the seams would melt because it didn't have any seams or rivets or anything like that. That was 1989. I said, what about now? This is a couple years ago. He said 3D printing. He goes, you would just 3D print it. Because if you look at anything 3D printed, you know, you can make things that move in 3D printing, and but it's one solid piece. It's literally revolution. There, there's a guy that made a whole car mm-hmm. out of 3D printing. So the brake assembly is literally one unit. It's made as one unit. And the piston inside moves, and it doesn't have – you can't break it. You can't – it's – And what, it's, we're, what we're probably imagining here is more of, you know, not 3D printing as we have it today, but, you know, a technological progression that would make it probably visually seamless and – Yes. Very strong, not what we have well, today. It's going to get better. Sure. I mean, yep. it's going to get of, way better. Yeah, you know, material deposition in a controlled manner. So let me let me jump back a little bit. You know, based off of what you were talking about with national security, which is, of course, something I respect um, mm-hmm. as a former aviator, um, we have to also remember that. Um, and so this was under the context of, hey, is a, is a discovery mindset or a disclosure mindset, uh, you know, the way forward in this conversation? And to your point, you know, Obviously, there has to be very serious national security considerations putting into whatever information could be released from the government. If that is uh, an avenue that we proceed down, uh, we can't just sacrifice our national security uh, to do this. However, I would say looking into the medium and long term, one of the problems that the U.S. has to contend with uh, in relation to international competition is the fact some of our adversaries uh, can essentially apply massive amounts of resources to problems outside of a capitalistic framework. And so they can pick and choose what they go after. And so if here in the United States, if we retain the research and development or the um, the, the really hard work on this problem on UAP into a very limited quantity of experts, my fear is we're not taking advantage of the great and massive advantages that our, you know, our financial framework, our, our, our capitalistic society provides us. We're holding back from that. And we will be passed by our competitors if or when they elect to put those massive amount of resources into it. I fear that's where we're at today. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. So, again, it's part of the, you know, the way we're structured. And sometimes you look at it and go, our system is a little archaic. Okay. That's kind of that checks and balances. It's the bureaucracy we call DC. So I was at a I was at a I was at a brief and there was an undersecretary uh, for one of the services and and they were talking about acquisition, and he said our plan is to go fast because we need to go faster, because if you take governments like you know I'll just use Russia and China they don't you know I don't think Putin worries about you know does he he doesn't go and ask for approval like oh I can you approve us to do this I think he makes that decision I'm pretty sure China. Uh, they make that decision. The government makes that decision. It doesn't go through a bunch of elected officials that have bipartisan views that go, oh, I don't want to do that or no. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, okay, but you got to put money towards my new bridge in my town. It, it doesn't work that way. They just do it. I was also told, in, you know, there's other countries where you go, oh, let's say you got a company like, I don't know, name it, 
Google, IBM, whatever. We'll just say we use Google, right? So Google has a huge AI cloud computing. It's based in Pittsburgh. That would be like the U.S. government going, you know, AI, cloud, this is the next big thing, and we need to advance now. The U.S. government showing up in Pittsburgh and telling Google, we're taking this and all your people, and you can have them back in three years. We don't have to tell you what we're doing with them. We, don't have, we can pay them what we want. We're just doing it. And you have no choice. You know, suck it up, buttercup. It's, yeah, well, I'm not asking for your permission. I'm telling you what we're going to do. That's the difference. You know, if the U.S. government went in and told Google we're taking it all, Google would be like, get out of here. You know, next thing you know, you'd even an eight-year lawsuit, you know, going to Supreme Court, and nothing would amount for it. No one would go to jail or anything else, which is an abuse of power. Right? So that's, that's the thing that we're dealing with. So when I was at this thing and he said, go fast, I thought to myself, I said, well, go fast. I said, but yeah, but you can't go fast because you're still, you haven't changed the process in order to get the money. So, you know, when they do all the budgets and stuff for DOD, they're looking five years out, like, here's the budget for the next five years, and here's what I want to buy. And then it goes through, you know, months and months and months, finally ends up on the presidential budget, you know, it's like this thick, and then the presidential budget comes out and says, boom, and now they can start moving. Now they've got, because they went through appropriations, they've got the money approved, the, the president signed off, we have, all, we have the money, now we can do contracts. Unless you change that, or you have, you, you redo funding that says, hey, there, we have a pot of money for certain things that's just going to get replenished. But, you know, now it's known, you know, or you have a program that it's kind of discretionary, kind of like uh, petty cash in a business where you go, I just need to go get this or buy, you know, you don't have to, it's not, you're just worried about what you took. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think for the initial stuff on this is it's it, in the big picture, it's relatively low cost. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to build a whole new infrastructure. I'm not trying to do all that. I'm trying to capitalize on this you know and i think from the speculation like someone did an account for the tic tac you know for it to come down from above eighty thousand feet hang out do what it did and then go up and disappear the the amount of energy for something that we would know to do that is like through the roof it's like you're running new york city for quite a long time on the power required to do that like maybe ignite the atmosphere type energy levels yes (laughs) so you go okay well, one, how's it doing? Because now you're talking game-changing technology that we don't possess. Or maybe we do possess, we just don't know how to make it work. Um, you know, and oh, by the way, if, if, if we have technology, and I'm just talking about what was just released, saying they're right and we have technology and we have these craft in some state of either fully together or not fully together, I'm going to assume that other countries have the same thing. Right. So you can say, you know, let's just say the big ones, Russia, China, um, you know, where's where's that at? You know, and where are they at? Because they don't have the issues that we have. They they're doing it. We have some of the brightest people in the world, you know, that want to do this stuff. But, um, you know, is it a can you because your pool that you're swimming in is much smaller than the big pool. And I've said this of is there a chance to pull other academics where you go? This person over here at this university is like one of the leading experts. Can you feed him in in a, you know, you'd have to kind of put it in a swim lane, I'd say, you know, where you're not going to get to see everything, but you're going to get to see this piece. How's this work? Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably been done, um, but not overly successful because I don't know the state. I don't know the truth on that stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, what I see. But a buddy of mine, that I was, or that text I was reading when I came in here, he had said, you know, why is why do you think that, you know, the government is not trying to put a lid on some of this stuff that's coming out? And my response was social media. The government can't react fast enough 
to do it. And oh, by the way, the difference between now and the 50s is the people in the government want to know. You know you've got elected officials that are actively, you know, the, the well, I think it was the defense acquisition bill that got passed that uh, Senator Rubio and Gillibrand put the clause. I think it was those two. If I'm wrong, please forgive me. Uh, the bill, the, the whistleblower that says, look, anyone inside, anyone that's working inside the U.S. government that has knowledge of this stuff can come to us as a whistleblower and there can be no repercussions against you. It's, it's law. The president signed it. It's law. So if your boss, you know, like if I'd have told someone when I was a CO, don't you say a word. You just need to get a hold of the people in D.C. and you can say whatever you want. Nothing can happen to you. You know, but I also, there was a thing on a guy, I saw something in Afghanistan, but I, I was told I couldn't talk about it because it's top secret and I'm not allowed to talk about it. It's like, it's, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't look at someone. I didn't have the authority. I wasn't a classifying authority when I was a CEO. Go, that's top secret. You can't talk about it. You know, maybe if you're a junior, you know, you're an airman, you know, you're 18 years old, you'd be like, oh my God, I don't want to go to jail. But legally, I could, I didn't have that power. I didn't have to go, yep, I'm making this. This is now top secret. Dave said so. Classified by Dave for Dave. There's a process there's a that goes process. through when we classify stuff. And there's reasons that we classify stuff. So um, it's it's getting that stigma. And supposedly, he's only the first one that's went public. The rumor is, from inside... You talk about Grush right now? Yes. Mm -hmm. That there are, there are many people that have come out. There was a guy that came out and actually said, I worked with him, and he's legit. <laughs> He's yeah. actually did those jobs. He is actually. So now you got someone that literally said he was there. It's kind of like the, you know, I'll go back to Bob because this is 1989. Bob said he worked at Los Alamos and then are like the national uh, labs. And um, no, 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 he didn't. No, he didn't. And then they found a phone book with his name in it. Said, mm -hmm. well, obviously he did. And then he knew his way around and people there knew him. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, you know, because guy that builds rocket cars is mm -hmm. pretty easy to remember. So, you know, you try and erase that he was there, but then you prove that he's really there. Hmm. Well, now you got someone right away that comes out and says, oh, no, that's legit. He actually worked here. Boom, 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 in the clear. So I, I just think the, the the tide has shifted mm -hmm. and it's picking up a lot of momentum. Um, well, let me let me explain one thing I've been I've been seeing. Yeah. And, and this is at, uh this is a good time, I guess, to transition to this. So. Um, as I think some of the watchers might know, I recently started uh, Americans for Safe Aerospace, uh, which is a 501c3 nonprofit. Uh, essentially, our mission is to identify what's in our skies um, in a tactical environment, in a you know a civilian aviation environment. Uncertainty in aerospace is something that needs to be resolved. That's not something that we just settle with and we allow to be part of our normal operations. Um, and to what you were just talking about, um, Sadly, we've seen, I think, um, some potential whistleblowers not necessarily trust some of the uh, people in the pathway of that process that you just described that was passed in the National Defense Authorization Act of 2023. Um, right now, uh, one of the agencies that uh, is to set up a secure pipeline for that is the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or ARO, within the Department of Defense. Uh, however, it seems some whistleblowers are going either directly to Congress or uh, to others to uh, report their cases. Uh, there seems to have been some lack of success reporting directly through the arrow mechanisms in at least some of the cases, and this is anecdotal from what I've heard. Uh, but uh, the point is, um, we are seeing a lot of whist potential whistleblowers. You may classify them as whistleblowers. You may classify them just as pilots who've seen things or former... Uh, patriots. Patriots, yeah. Uh, military folks that have seen a lot of things. They actually are coming to the American for Safe Aerospace. They seem to feel that is an organization that um, 
is respectable and credentialed enough where um, they're sharing their experiences. Uh, some of these we are formalizing into uh, official case files that we may or may not be able to present uh, to Congress, depending on how the investigations continue. Uh, and so to your point, you know, we are seeing these people come out of the woodwork. I think we're going to continue to see that happen more and more. Um, for those that don't know, uh, Dave Dave here has joined Americans for Safe Aerospace, uh, currently on our, our aircrew leadership council, but we've also invited uh, Dave to join us on the board of directors um, at ASA. Uh, it's always been important that this organization was uh, a pilot-led organization because at the end of the day, this is such a pragmatic issue for me. Uh, and I know that you share that same feeling because you understand what it's like to be up there and not have the ability to mitigate these types of risks. Yep. So thanks for joining and thanks for speaking out on this topic. No, it's and it is because I think, you know, the focus right now of everything has been military. It was the East Coast events that you were part of. It's the West Coast events that we had. But, you know, and I, I know you talked to, to Zeno, uh, the airline pilots. There's a bunch of people. My brother-in-law is a UPS. He's seen stuff flying over the Pacific. Like, hey, I'm looking at a light go one way, and it just stops and goes right back the other way. We don't have that technology mm-hmm. at all just to stop and go the other way. So you're seeing, a matter of fact, I went to uh, – I was on vacation in Hawaii, and we got off this whale-watching thing, and there was a uh, – one of the flight attendants from our flight was on the thing, and she had her, her couple-day layover in, uh, in Hawaii. And it, somehow the subject came up, and she's like, oh, we see stuff all the time. She goes, I've had captains call me up in the cockpit go, check this out. So there's, a, you know, the question is, is, one, I think it's being reported more. So this is kind of like when you put a focus on safety. Um, I was When I did oil and gas, we, you know, we went out and consulted safety stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you do, when you put a focus on safety, what you first see is you see a rise in incidents. And it's not that there's a rise in incidents. It's there's a rise in reporting of incidents. It's not more incidents. It's just people are now talking about it because they feel safe to talk about it. So the more we're seeing with people, is, it, is there, are there more incidents? Like are there more of these UAPs flying around or are people just more willing to talk about it? Because it used to be, yeah, I saw something weird and it is what it is. Like I never talked about it. Or I it. tricked myself. You know, you trick yourself yeah. into thinking it's yeah, it wasn't, that's because not real. what else would it be? But now you've got... Uh, a reporting process, and and I tell you what, it, it's social media is becoming, and I'm not a big social media fan because I think there's so much BS on social media, and anyone can be anything, you know, anyone can be a bully. They're talking about uh, oh the the memes and stuff that come out with this this submarine that just imploded going mm. down to the Titanic. You know, and it's and you look at it because if if people view it, you know, I always look at the views. Like, all right, it's great you guys did this story, but it got a thousand views. Okay, um, but it's still a thousand views. And then if they share it, because what you don't see on like YouTube when it counts is where else was it shared? Was it posted on Facebook? Was it shared around? So the, you know, word gets out there, and word gets out there fast. So now I want to go back to 1947 and think, okay, Roswell, this thing crashes. And, you know, the farmer sees it, he calls, you know, the Air Force, I'm trying to think of his name, goes out there. You know, now you got social media and they're doing it. And then and the farmer's taking pictures with his phone and he's posting them. Before the military shows up, he's posting that stuff on Facebook. So now you got pictures of stuff. You can't make that go away. Mm-hmm. In 1947, you could. You, you clean up the mess. Oh, uh, there's nothing to see here. And then you do it. But with social media, there's so much. I mean... 
I mean, there's stuff hitting YouTube and Facebook faster than it hits the news networks because it's someone with their cell phone. The first thing they do is not send it to NBC or CBS or CNN or Fox or whatever. They post it. Mm -hmm. They go, ooh, 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 I'm posting this, and then I'm going to put it on YouTube, and I'm going to do this stuff because you see it. And the proliferation of, you know, security cameras. I mean, you almost can't do anything between your cell phone because it tracks you and security cameras. You know, that's the, the murder suspect in Idaho. You know, those four kids that got killed, Kronberger. Oh, um, yeah. That's how they, they started tracking cell phones. They figured out his cell phone, and then they started looking at security cameras. And you can see his, you know, they go, well, there's a camera here. He came this way, and there, there's his car, and there's his car going the other way. So, And you start narrowing stuff down. So I think just technology alone that's in the hands, you know, because we invited Big Brother into our lives. Mm-hmm. If you'd think so or not, but go read 1984, you're living it. Um, it's too hard. You can't put that back in a box. It's out there. Mm-hmm. And in our government, you know, if, if you're China and you just want to shut down the internet, you can do that. You know, shut down the internet in the United States, you're going to have a revolution. <laughs> you know, people will just lose their minds. You're more worried about the electrical grid, but I mean, <laughs> same point, I think. Yeah, but you think about it. Yeah. I think that's the big problem. That's literally what I text back my buddies. Like, why do you think that stuff's not coming out? I said, I just think with social media and now the support of elected officials that want to know, you know, if there is stuff, it's only a matter of time. Mm-hmm. It's only a matter of time. You can only hide so long because someone's going to talk, you know, someone's going to talk, you know, and you can go back to 1989 when Bob talked and didn't know what was going to happen to him, you know, and it's not believe or not believe. It's just he did this. Yeah. Now you're going, oh, the same stuff is happening. And oh, by the way, there's more. It's just not everyone wants to And now to there's a process in place, though, to do it the right there's way. There's a formal process. Because when I talked to some of the officials in D.C., they had asked one. I said, you don't know where to look. And I said, here's the other one. I said, for one, if you look, everyone looks at the military. I go, there's a bunch of organizations inside the United States government that can hide stuff. I said, but from a military standpoint, you're in a place three years, four years, if you do two tours, six years, blah, 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 except for like Lamore. But if you're going to go to places that are really remote and you're going to you know, hide stuff, you know, there's limited time that you're going to be there. But the government civilian population, the GSs, GS 9 to 15, and it goes into SES, which is the flag equivalents, they'll stay in those positions and in those organizations for 30, 35 years. So mm-hmm. if you said, hey – I've got this. Just send it to Bob down the hall. You know, you know that long corridor on the left, and it goes to Bob. Bob's got it. Bob's been there forever. You know, he can do that. It's, it's right. It's the, it's the irony of Hollywood when you look at, like, Independence Day, you know, and they go out to the, 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 the place in the desert, you know, and uh, which I think in the movie they call it Area 51. But they go out there, and they're with the president, and they got the – I think it's the secretary of defense or whatever, and they go in there, and he's like – how did I not know about this? The president says, you know, and they've been working on it. Oh, good to see you. We were hoping you would come someday. <laughs> and he's like, how did I know about this? He goes, well, we don't tell you everything. You know, we just, there's only a few, you know, and, and that's literally, you go, hey, there's 30, 40 people that know about it. And in the entire United States, you go, okay, you know, and, and you, you don't think you could hide stuff? It's like, yeah. You can hide stuff. You can hide stuff in plain sight. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to go back to the point that you made earlier about, yeah. um, or at least actually the point I made, but uh, I will add that, you know, folks that um, are in a position to take advantage of those whistleblower laws, 
uh, that were put into place or commercial pilots or, or other air crew that um, want to add their data to this, uh, you can go to safeaerospace.org uh, and contact us to uh, submit that statement. Uh, as I said, we are developing uh, some interesting cases that um, could potentially form into eventual whistleblower cases. We're not interested in classified information. We're not set up for that, and that's not what we're asking for. But um, whether you know you have supporting paperwork or something that's very firm, or you just like to add your data, I would encourage you to go to the website, join up, um, and and send an email to submit your story. We are going to have more formalized uh, database as well as submission forms specifically for this task in the near future. Uh, hopefully up already by the time this airs. Uh, but I would encourage you again to go to safeaerospace.org um, and submit through there. Yeah, I think that's important too because not everyone has access to go to Congress, you know, and some people just don't know where to report it. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's not like they're afraid. It's just they don't know where to go. It's a lot. And know, the I've, cool the cool thing with this is, you know, it's 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 podcast, you know, it's it's reputable podcasts, you know, where you go, hey, look, I'm not, this is not my end all. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to become overly famous on this. I'm just trying to solve answers. You know, I think, you know, you've done that. Lex Friedman's done a great job of, of bringing people on because he takes a scientific approach. And then Joe Rogan, who obviously being the largest pod, I think he's the largest podcast on the planet. Um, he gets this out there and he talks about it prof- professionally, as does Lex. You know, and that's what you want. You want this credible, kind of unbiased view. Well, you know, what do you think? You know, and you hear it. Is that guy full of shit? I don't know. Is he, you know, is he, I don't know. Uh, you know, when you're talking about like some of the people that come forward, you mm-hmm. know, because I've heard people talk that I don't agree with. There's there's people that talk that, you know, if I get called up and someone says, hey, like I got called up by a, f- a foreign TV station said, hey, we do this. I said, who are you working with? They said, well, we're talking to this person. I says, you can cut me out. Because if there's certain people they're going to be a part of, I don't want to be a part because to me it, it detracts credibility. It's part of the reason I don't talk much. I mean, I mean, you've seen my phone. I, I've, I get requests all the time. And right now I only do it if if I know you, it's mm-hmm. only, that's why we're talking. I know you, I trust you. I know this is not going to come out like a clown show, um, which to me is important. Um, and I'm not saying that some of the ones that have contacted me aren't reputable. Don't, don't take it that way. It's just, you know, I, you know, I have the ability to be selective. You know, I have a whole other life that I live and I'd like to leave, you know, I like that life. Um, and like I said, you know, as much as my time in the Navy didn't define me, I don't think this should define me, although it has, because I get people that come up to me on the street and go, hey, you're that guy. I go, yes, I am. I, had a, I was at a, I was at a, th- I was at a facility uh, uh, at work. We were meeting with some people, some of our clients, and uh, there was, we were talking to two of them, and I was, there was like six of us, and there's these two guys, and they're sitting there at their computer terminals and talking, and I look over at the guy on the right, and he's turned around, and he's, he, I can see he's Googling, and I see Nimitz. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, great. And he turns around, and he looks at me, and he goes, hey, because I saw what he was Googling. And he goes, hey, I go, yes. <laughs> and he's like, are you? I go, yeah, yeah, it's, yes. And, and someone looked at me, and they go, what? I go, I'll tell you later. So when I left, my boss was there, and she's, when we got back together, she goes, wow, they must have really been interested in our, you know, our stuff. I said, No. <laughs> I said, that guy rec- knew who I was, and he just wanted to talk about the UFOs and what's going on. And I said, so it, it's that piece. You know, I laugh at times. It's funny. Um, and most people are pretty cool about it. Like, you can tell, but, you know, they'll stare. But every once in a while, they'll come up. And, and most people are really, really polite. Like, hey, thanks. Really appreciate what you did. But for the most part, it's, you know, I don't want it to define me. It's, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you, you've, been a, you've been a Marine. 
Yes. Uh, you've been a Navy fighter pilot, uh, commanding officer. Yeah. Top Gun graduate. Did you instruct at Top Gun? No, I did not. Very good. I went right to, I went through Top Gun and instead of going to be uh, like a weapon school guy or stay at Top Gun, I went to Japan and ended up being right. in the air wing strike ups. So, uh, so you accomplished all that. Each one of those is something that potentially does define a person. Those are all incredible accomplishments. Um, and never, never mind the fact that you may be, you know, the first person to tactically engage <laughs> a true. UAP. I, I said that, I, I said that to a guy, I was doing a project, um, at a government organization. I won't, uh, I won't tell it's a five letter organization. Um, and, uh, we were doing, uh, the, some of the combat stuff and, uh, I was sitting there, we were talking about like the future. I said, well, I actually went two circle with a 10th gen fighter. Uh, we're on a fifth gen fighter. And he looked at me, he goes, you know, Dave, that's actually probably true. You're probably the only person on the planet that's done that. I said, yeah, I, I said, I went two circle with a 10th gen fighter and it bugged. And they said, what? I go, I figured out it was me and I left. You know, I got to pump my ego up a little bit. <laughs> that was the joke on the airplane comic, you know. Uh, well, you've had a successful career too after the Navy. Uh, you have a lovely wife and uh, a bunch of successful children. Uh, all of these, I think, would be individually something that would define somebody. Uh, you've said a lot of ways how you don't want to be defined. Have you thought about how you do want to be? Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, obviously, husband, dad, now grandpa. I'm a grandpa Congratulations. Now. I am. Yeah, she'll be here next week on Wednesday. Amazing. So, uh, you know, that. But for me... Um, I'd like, you know, it's hard to get the majority, everybody to be a hundred percent, you know, because uh, there's always someone that thinks you're an a-hole, but, uh, you know, just an all around good, generous person, you know, I like to do things for people, uh, without telling them, I just did something for, for, for a young boy, uh, he was big in aviation and, um, his teacher knew me. And she had said, hey, this kid is just – he's eight years old. He's second grader. This kid is obsessed with aviation, like obsessed. And I went – and he went to the same school as me. And I said – she goes, hey she, – she's actually really, really good friends with my wife. We all went to high school together. She said, hey, um, can Dave put something together? I'm like, yeah, you know, does he have any pictures? And I said, I'm like, yeah. So I called one of my JOs from 41 who has done multiple tours with the Blues – and lives in Pensacola. So I said, hey, dude, can you get me a litho? You know the blues lithos. I said, hey, can you get me a litho personalized for this kid? Oh, you know, nice. I, I want to hook this kid up, and then I'll send him some other stuff. So he's like, be my honor. So we're waiting, and it's getting to the end of the year, and he, he calls me, and he says, hey, did you get that? I said, no. He goes, man, they sent it like two weeks ago. I go, dude, I need it like in, in two days because school's going to end, and they want to give it to him before mm. school's up. So sure enough, two days later, Envelope shows up. It's got the litho. It's got two other pictures of the blues with Fat Albert. It's got the 2023 yearbook. And uh, so I go in and I, I found some of my stuff. Like I had, a old, I had a Top Gun patch, a real Top Gun patch, not the fake ones you buy online. Uh, a sticker for Top Gun. I, and I wrote him a letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I put a, I put some patches, like some of mine, that like one of my ones, the squadron stuff, because he likes to dress up as pilot. He did that for Halloween. And I told him, I, you know, I sent it to him. I said, hey, these are this. I told him what everything was, too. Like, this is this. Game of Squadron coin from 41 that I had laying around. So I just I put all this stuff together for this kid. Because for me, it's like motivating the youth. That's the future. 
And I wrote him this nice letter saying, hey, you know, Thomas, I know, you know, your teacher told me you're a huge aviation buff. I said, but there's a lot more that you and I have in common. You know, I went to the same school as you. And at five years old, I became obsessed when I watched the Neil Armstrong walk on the moon, which mm. how old I am. Um, and that's what cued me in that I wanted to fly. And I just, you know, it was basically like, you know, follow your dreams. Don't ever let anyone tell you no. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And I wrote him this. It's a pretty big letter. I can just let you see it. But so I wrote him the letter. And I didn't, I didn't. I didn't ask for any recognition. I put it all in, in an envelope, and we mailed it off. Hmm. If you want to define me, I want to be defined by acts of kindness like that. Not acts of kindness where I get recognition, just acts of kindness of helping people out, helping people succeed. I mean, I did it in the Navy, you know, to try and help my sailors get to where they want to get them the orders that they wanted to help them be successful in life. And I've done it here. People don't need to know I do it, but, you know, the people that are like, hey, can you help me out? It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll that's how I want to be known. To one, me, that's more important. One of the ways I've personally defined leadership is enabling others in a way that's best for them as individuals, not necessarily for organization on a personal level. Um, you've done that, I think, as a commanding officer. I think I've known you well enough to say that you have a personal kind of leadership style that's very engaging and direct and one-on-one, and I've seen you do that professionally as well with subordinates, and they really respect you for that. Um, I see yourself when you reach back and explain that to me about how you're reaching out to what I would say is the next generation and providing that same mentorship. Uh, I would almost say that's one way to define it. You're, you know, someone that is very giving and that is very eager to see the next generation grow up and you can maximize your leadership effectiveness by, um, by influencing that next generation. You know, funny you say that. And I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, cause I, I was fortunate enough to work for just some of the best people. So, I had a boss in the Navy, one of the best leaders I ever worked for, God rest his soul. Um, he, he had to make a choice. He could either, he was pre-selected for major command, which is Air Wing Commander, good chance he would have made flag, one mm -hmm. on, just a super, super talented individual. But he had moved his daughter like 13 times. She was 13 years old. His family had been all over. You know how it is with the Navy. Um, so he elected to go, he was really smart. He had a master's, he was a Naval Academy grad, had a master's from the Kennedy School at Harvard. Uh, I actually took him back in January, uh, really cold, back so he could talk to the PhD program because he wanted to do the professional military instructor job. So professional military instructor is you go, you basically get your PhD and then you go back and you finish off your time to 30 years. And he was pretty senior at this time because he was a post-command 05, which is really rare, a post-command aviator, uh, tactical aviator, he's that 14 guy, flying Super Hornets now, um, to go back to the Naval Academy because you didn't have those mm -hmm. people going to the Naval Academy when I was there. So he looked at me one day because he was going to do this, and he ended up he, – he got into Harvard, but he turned it down. He ended up going to the University of Maryland and worked with a lot of the former uh, very senior government like DOD folks that were his mentors as he went through this leadership PhD then he finished up his time. He ran the leadership department at Navy. He ended up sitting, I think, the ethics chair at West Point and did a bunch of stuff. And then, unfortunately, uh, he, he passed away uh, at his own hand, believe it mm -hmm. or not. So, um, But uh, he, he asked me one day, he said, you know, do you, do you think I'm doing the right thing? Because I was kind of his sounding board, and I was sitting in his office. I would go down there once a week, just sit in his office, close the door, and he would just talk. Mm -hmm. And I'd just sit there and listen to him. It was like his, he could vent. He could yeah. vent to me. And he said, do you think I'm doing the right thing? And I said, I do. 
And he said, why? I said, well, let me put it in this context. Let's say you don't do, you just stay the normal thing, you air wing, and you, you make it all the way to four star. You become the CNO. I said, how many people are you really going to influence? How many people are you going to really remember? I mean, I spent a lot of time in the Navy. If you asked me who the CNOs were when I was there, I'd be like, I don't know. If you asked me who all the other admirals, I'd go, I don't know. I, I really don't. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. They didn't, because they don't directly influence me. I said, now, now you go the other path that you're doing and you go to the Naval Academy, you spend the last five years of your career teaching with your background. You're going to retire as an 06, but you're going to teach midshipmen. So if you're there for five years, you're going to have access to basically 8,000 plus midshipmen over the time. And everyone's going to know who you are because you're that kind of leader. He's very personable. He's super nice. And he's a tactical guy. I mean, he flew the pointy nose jets off the, off the big flat boat. Mm -hmm. um, I said, what's your impact going to be? If you stay in and make four star, when you get out, the memory of you will fade rapidly. You'll go do what you do. I said, but if you influence 8,000 midshipmen, and even if you don't come, you'll come in touch with at least half. So you got 4,000 midshipmen. Of those 4,000 midshipmen, some of them are going to go on to be four stars 30 years from now. And they're going to take what you taught them because I'm a big believer that you, you take away a part of everyone that you meet, good or bad. I said, you're going to influence those young leaders that are going to carry what you taught them for 30 years in the Navy. You'll be, we'll be long gone, dude. We, we, we won't even know if we're coming or going at that time. I said, now ask me if you made the right decision on the impact that you're going to have overall for the Navy. And he looked at me and he said, I love talking to you. He said, he goes, you're absolutely right. I said, I, I can tell you my Naval Academy profs that uh, had an impact on me to this day. You know, and that was 30, we were doing our 35th this year. So 35 years ago. I mean, I know the ones who I looked at and said, that guy, I liked him. I liked his style. I know my commanding officers at the 05 command level. Um, most of the other ones above were more figureheads than the guys that actually influenced me and molded me. So that's, that's, that's kind of that point of giving to the young ones because those are the ones that are going to carry on the legacy longer than your peers. Mm -hmm. You know, school, it's just like the people that go, you go, who has the most influence? The business leader, you know, like he's like Zuckerberg, you know, he runs Facebook, he's a billionaire, he's successful. Or the high school teacher that really cares. You know, the sports coach that it's not just about always winning, but it's about helping you grow the individual grow into a productive adult who who's who's better i'd say the the high school teacher or the elementary school like i still know i had a one of the kids called me it was our my football coach's son called me about the ufo stuff i knew him when he was little he's about i don't know eight years younger than me his mom was one of my teachers and i was talking to him and i said hey uh when you see your mom tell her thanks that she was probably and she is to this day uh mrs gachardo I'm, I'll mention her. Um, probably one of the best teachers I ever had, all the way through college, masters, all that stuff. She was just, she was amazing. She cared, and uh, you know, impact. And she was always there if I needed something when you're doing all the paperwork to do stuff. She was always there for me. And I go, you know, that's that's the impact you want to have. That's what you want to be remembered. Sadly, you don't realize those people are performing that role until you look back. Often, no, you don't. But you know, being kind to people's, you know. I always use my grandfather's funeral. My grandfather was a beer delivery guy. And, beer delivery uh, guy? He was a beer delivery guy. He, he did. He drove the beer truck and a uh, great guy. And uh, he was the one who always told me, you know, you're, no one's ever, you're not better than anyone and no one's better than you. He goes, Don't, it's not money or anything else. It's the person that you are. 
So, and he was a normal guy. And, you know, I was fortunate enough that he was my grandfather. So, you know, sorry to everyone that he wasn't. But um, when he died, you know, think anything of it, he's, he's a normal guy. You know, grew up poor. You know, his, he was the first one, I think first, first or second one born in the United States. Everyone else came from Sicily. Hmm. So he comes over, he does that. When he dies, the funeral procession was miles long. There was no room in the church. There was standing room outside. The aisles were all, it was just, it was complete. And this is really the first real funeral I went to. So I'm thinking, this is the norm, right? Someone actually, I think, asked my mom or my aunt, who died the Pope? And I'm like, no. And they go, what, who was he? She said, oh, it was my dad. And they said, what'd he do? And they go, he was a beer delivery guy. But he was so kind to people, um, you know, he, you know, completely unbiased, like during the 60s. He was the one guy taking the beer down into the to the minority neighborhoods when the riots were going on, and the guys were protecting him. And um, you know, when he died, you go, "Wow, all these people!" And everyone was there. I mean, there was mafia people there. The head of the Black <laughs> Panthers was there. Um, and to see, and I'm just like, you know, I'm a high school kid. I'm thinking, "All right, well, yeah, my grandpa was a great guy." No, he was. You know, his legacy was far more because there's filthy, filthy rich people that are successful in business that die, and nobody's there. Mm-hmm. You know, or they're there because they want a piece. He wasn't giving anybody anything, and it was really just people paying their respect. That's, you know, I doubt I would ever have anything like that. But you know, if, if I just impact the lives of people and they go, that guy made a difference in my life. That's all I care about. You know, my kids are, my kids are a living example of that. They're they're doing quite well for themselves, and you know, hopefully my granddaughter has that same thing. But that's all I care about. Well. Dave, thanks for the impact you've made on my life and the impact you made on other people's hey, lives that. through this, your experiences. I know a good thing when I see it. That's why, <laughs> that's why I gave you a job. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just, you know, y- you can see good people. I think everyone provides value. You just have to put them in the right spot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't, don't, don't judge people. Don't put them in a box because they don't fit your mold. And it's an unconscious bias that we all have. And I'm, I'm guilty of it. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's that way. But then you got to step back when you find yourself doing that, going, okay. So let me ask Dave, where, yeah. you, where do you think this story goes in the next five years? I think, personally, I should say I think and I hope that there's going to be a rollout disclosure. I don't think they're going to dump it all at once. You know, I'm not going to lift up the garage door and go, here it is. There it is. We've, we've had it. We've had it forever. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to see pieces come out. Are we already on that process? I think we're. I think we're there. I think with the the folks that are inside that are coming out through the whistleblower act, thanks to the senators for getting that passed into law. Um, I think that's that's a game changer. It's yeah. literally a game changer because I'm telling you, you know this. Prior to 2017, they tell you, man, if you came out and said that, you were done. Like no one wanted to talk to you. It's like, oh, you know, uh, you know, watch how you approach it. Now it's like no big deal. They'll, they'll call you up on the phone. I mean, there's there's influential people outside of government that are very well financed, you know, billionaires that are into this, that mm-hmm. are trying to sway this and move it. Because everyone wants to move. If we have it, let's move the technology. Because what you don't want is someone, like I talked to, go back to the nuke story. You don't want someone to gain the access and figure it out that's going to do bad with it. You know, once we had it, you know, and then you go, hey, the other other countries that started to get nuclear weapons have that. There's still that deterrent because we have it too. Mm-hmm. The fear is when we first got it, the fear with the rest of the world was, oh, my God, they just used it. Oh, my God. Where are they, they going to stop? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's not our nature. Yeah. You know, we, we go in, you know, World War II, we blow everything up, and then we put a bunch of money into it to rebuild it. 
you know, it's it's our nature. I like to think, you know, there's obviously someone that doesn't like the U.S. that's going to go, ah, it's crap, they didn't do anything. Well, we did. Um, and we do put a lot of money out. It's just, you know, I think this is, I think it's groundbreaking what's going on right now. I sit back and I watch. You know, and as you know, you know, we have contact of people that are kind of on the inside, so you kind of get little feeders of what's going on. Um, I think I think we're on the precipice of something big. I think it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I'm confident that it will happen in my lifetime. And so everyone knows I'm going to be 59, so I got some time. But I think, <laughs> I think it's going to happen sooner than later. I think, you know, hopefully by the time I'm getting my Social Security checks that uh, – that at least we know that we have stuff. Maybe I'm not going to get into like the bodies, but everything's coming out. The whole uh, moment of contact that James Fox did about the Verzinga Brazil incident. I mean, there's another example. And that's 97. Remember, that's right before everything. St- you know, internet was 14.4 modems, maybe 28.8 back then. It was, you know, remember they used to have the phone book. You could go to the WW, you know, look up, oh, I want this. Before it was literally, you know, that's when Google was really becoming the the search engine. So it wasn't, you know, and everyone didn't have, you know, 97, I had a flip phone. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Did I have a flip if phone? If you had that. If oh, you had I didn't even have, screen, I didn't have a cell phone in 97. No. No. I wish I had my Razor. I still have it. I wish it worked because I love my, <laughs> I love my Razor. I got an iPhone, but I love my Razor. Um, it's, I just, I, you can't, with technology and the way the world is so connected, I don't think you can keep it in a box. I think in certain countries you can keep it in a box because mm-hmm. they can control the population. But in a free-speaking world, you're, there's no way you're going to keep it in a box. People are gonna just going to – they're just going to do what they do, and they're going to get stuff out there. And uh, as soon as it's posted, once it hits the ether, as you know, no matter what – it's like Instagram. What's what's the one that goes away? Is it Instagram that it pulls up and it's only there for a little bit and it goes uh, away? Yeah. Snapchat, or is that yeah, Snapchat? Yeah, you're talking Snapchat, one of those, yeah. Yeah, but people don't realize, you know, it comes up and you go boom and you capture the picture – you can, yeah. You yeah, can and you can do that. So it's it's once it's out there, it's out there. You can't, you know, which is why I'm glad I grew up without cell phones because some of the stuff that I did, I'm pretty glad <laughs> that there were no cell phones around. But I, I think, honestly, you know, I think what you're doing is important because it's another avenue. I also think that the safety of aviation is important, uh, especially with the, you know, you look at the shortage of pilots, you talk airlines and that one government person, it's like, hey, we'll just reduce training. No, yeah. we're we're, well, they, yeah. we're running at like five. You know, we in the United States of America, major airlines, it's like five nines. It's better than like six sigma. It's it's pretty amazing the safety record that we have. The check six piece to say you could fly for like fourteen thousand years before you would have a mishap wow. on major carriers. But when you start lowering that, you know, it's why you know when they come out and say, well, it's all DEI. We got to do DEI. I said no. We don't do DEI for sports. You know, the the NBA, the NFL, the Major League Baseball. We don't go out and go. Well, you know what? We need this flavor of person. No. We're looking for the best. Mm-hmm. It's like I don't want I don't want someone who got selected to be a doctor to be well good enough. You know, I want someone that actually worked hard and, and knows what they're doing, not oh we put them in it worked. So I think when you look at that it, from an aviation standpoint, you know, and you go the best, but now we've got a shortage because people aren't moving that way. You know, the fear is you know over the next ten or fifteen years, what happens to the quality of people that we're pulling Standard out into degrade. aviation? Because right now it's you need fifteen hundred hours to get an ATP. But for someone that's like a civilian pilot, they you know they're up there in a couple thousand hours before they even get into moving heavies. What happens when you know we have a standardization is huge and the airlines do an amazing job of training people, but you know as you know aviation is a self cleaning oven, <laughs> and 
it's like 90% of mishaps from the military involve a human factor. You know, the airplane was actually landable and flyable, but they ended up ejecting or they crashed and killed themselves. You know, when you move that to a larger scale, uh, I I have concerns on that, that don't ever, don't lower the bar, or there's a there's a paper called widening home plate, you mm. know, don't widen home plate. Yeah. It's it's that size for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so stop widening home plate. You know, we, we have standards for a reason. We have academic standards for a reason. I think we've lowered them a lot in the United States. Um, stop lowering it. When I was a kid, if you failed, you found out when you didn't, you know, I had a first grade, never forget, buddy of mine, we all got our teachers for second grade. Who'd you get? We got her, first grade teacher. That's how I figured out he wasn't going to second grade. He did first grade twice. Um, and it worked out for him. Yeah. So, you know, nowadays it's like, you're, oh, no, keep keep going, keep going, keep going. No, there's, yeah. there's a reason. You know, math is math. A lot of incentives in that structure right now. But Yeah, so... Uh, Okay. Well, Dave, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah. Um, I think to your point, we are going to see a lot of changes in this area over the next few years. So oh. uh, perhaps we'll have you back on and we can discuss some of them. You know, Ryan, I, I hope we do. And I hope I get invited back. I think, you know, there's some, I think there's some stuff coming out, you know, there's the documentary that I know you're a part of that's going to be coming out that I think is going to be game changing. Um, there's been a lot of stuff said, but this, I think this is going to have, the right amount of people, I'm not saying who it is or when it is, but there is something being put together that I think, you know, hopefully it will come out and it'll be, you know, that one thing that pushes it over that says, all right, we can't, that the cat is definitely out of the bag because I think it, there's going to be some, some interesting information that comes out in it. So yeah. it'll be, it'll be good. I think it's, Stay it's an exciting you. times. <laughs> we don't support the X-File themes here at all. So. <laughs> all right, Dave, That's thanks so Twilight much. Zone. Yeah, thanks, dude. It's, it's been great. Great seeing you.